If I could go back and talk to 20-year-old Hawk, I would have punched him right in the face. <laughs> What's up, my brothers and sisters? Today, we have the pleasure of talking to my boy, Greg Hawk. He is a squad captain and uh, also a salvage man, uh, a.k.a. a picker. We talk about what it's like to be close to the end of your career and transitioning out, um, health scares, diet, special operations, change in the fire service, and we culminate with the great snake fire. It's a great conversation. Give it a listen and enjoy. Welcome to the Fireground Fitness Podcast. I'm your host, Rain Gray. Here, we're going to talk about all things pertaining to life on and off the fireground. The opinions expressed are mine and those of the guest. So, let's get started. So, the reason I wanted to sit down and talk to you is because, you know, you have been... Uh, a great example to follow throughout the course of my career is I've looked at the things that you're doing and um, the way that you're involved in the organization, the way that you are, uh, you teach and you, you take your job very seriously and um, not to put you on too much of a pedestal. Um, Dude, but it's so funny that you say that because I'm really a buffoon. Right. Well, I was about to get to that. The, uh, but I really, um, but with that being said, buffoonery aside, there's a, uh, uh, you know, there's things that you do. Uh, professionalism, a level of professionalism that I think is really, uh, really good. You take your job seriously. And I, I, I value that and think it's really important. And, um, and so I wanted to talk to you, you know, as you, you started a personal project, uh, focused on your last three years on the job and, um, you know, kind of transitioning out of the fire service into the real world. I want to talk about that too. And okay. you know, here we're sitting here today, sitting in your, uh, I think what I would say is part of your transition plan. This right? is part of my transition. Yeah. Yes. Hawk Salvage. Well, describe for everybody what we're, what we're sitting in here. <laughs> so we're sitting inside uh, Hawk Salvage, which is a warehouse on Grand Avenue, 1109 Grand Avenue, by the way. Which, I, for those who are not in our neck of the woods, is like right downtown. It is. It's downtown. It's slightly a little bit west. And Grand Avenue has a friggin' crazy seeded pass too. And there's still remnants of it around. So I cleaned the bushes out front when I first bought it here. And I found like a broken crack pipe, a couple of hypodermic needles, some dirty underwear, human feces, uh, used tampons, old rubbers underneath the bushes out there. So, I mean, that's kind of, it used to be a lot better. Phoenix is doing a great job of getting this place. Well, this, up. this whole neck of the woods is turning kind of an artisan community and yeah, and actually, this neighborhood has been designated the Arts District for the city of Phoenix now. So, And I'm in an area, kind of the triangle. So from here to Roosevelt, 7th Avenue to 15th Avenue, where that diagonal is a triangle. So what's the, so, what's the purpose of Hawk Salvage? So Hawk Salvage, how do you want me to go back a little ways? Yeah, tell me the history. Like, How would you get into this? Or what were you thinking? All right, so it started kind of funny, right? So I was going through my, my grandparents' attic stuff that we moved out here from Las Cruces, where born and raised Las Cruces, New Mexico. And uh, um, anyway, jumping ahead from that point, going through a bunch of stuff. And there were some things that had some family sentimental value and then other just random stuff. So uh, I met somebody and go, oh, you got to throw that on eBay. So I'm like, all right, whatever. So I tried to put a couple things up on eBay and I made a little bit of money on it. I was like, wow, that's kind of cool. Easy. So easy. Yeah, it was easy, you know. And uh, and I don't do any eBay now. At, after, you know, you get into it, then you have to get, like, you know, rated and all this other stuff. It's a big joke. And there's people that just rate people and buy and sell stuff on eBay. Mm. Personally, not for me. I'm sure it works for some people, but not me. So anyway, uh, I met somebody else that was doing some public surplus stuff. And uh, I had I had one big purchase. I did a bunch of little things, but I bought 100 
vintage antique theater lights out of a school in Utah. I paid four mm. bucks a piece for the lights. I'm like, cool. Like so, hanging lights? Like, they hang like the theater, the... like the spotlights, the oh, okay. theater spotlights. Oh, yeah, okay. So I brought those back and uh, I put them on eBay, just the auction type thing. And I sold all of them anywhere from, most of them went from 60 to $80 a piece. Mm. I was like, wow, maybe there's something in this. So then I just started buying random junk. And it was kind of twofold. I was at a, the whole thing started, um, I was working in a fire station that I was absolutely not happy at at all. It was close to my house, and at the time, I was uh, coaching uh, high school lacrosse, and it was close to the school. So it was very, very convenient. So I just stuck it out, which was probably the worst thing I've ever done in my entire career. Mm-hmm. And I had some family stuff, and I wasn't real happy you know, at home with some things. And, uh, man, I found great therapy in friggin' buying random junk. So that's kind of where it started. And it turned, it turned you into like a, into a picker. Yes. Is that kind of the... So, yeah, it went from public surplus auctions to garage sales to hanging out at Goodwill to finally got to the point where I was knocking on doors going, hey, I noticed you got a lot of stuff on your side yard. Interested in selling any of Just it? Just like on a TV show. Just like on a TV <laughs> show. So now um, uh, I'll follow, like my favorite thing to do is follow random post office auctions. I won't, I uh, recently drove back to Pennsylvania to buy a postal mail sorter cabinet, this old wood cabinet. It was stamped on the top, like U.S. Postal Department, 1942. Oh, cool. So I drove back there. I picked that up, paid 25 bucks for it, pulled a 20-foot trailer, and then spent three weeks driving the United States, all the back roads, everything back, filled my trailer. And um, so that's what it's developed into from selling stuff out of grandma's attic. Well, as I'm looking around here, I, I can't even begin to describe some of these pieces, but there's some really amazing uh, artwork and and just stuff that you, you know, like the, there's, you have some tripods over there, like, a, like an engineer's tripod. that are Surveyor's tripod. Surveyor's tripod, yeah. They're just so cool and very unique. And, you know, um, I suppose if it was just collapsed in the corner in someone's garage, you, you wouldn't even think twice about it. But when you see it set up in the context of this, um, you know, this brick building with the exposed, you know, wood, heavy timber trusses and what a neat space you've created here. And, uh, you know, you've got these scales and antique scales and some vintage puppets and, and really cool stuff that is, uh, I never would have thought twice to look at, but I look at it now and I'm like, wow, what a neat, uh, yeah. neat expression of, of artwork and, and, uh, of neat ideas, neat things. Yeah. And I have, I mean, I, I really have a collection. I have stuff back here from, well, I have a painting in the corner over there. I don't know if you saw the religious painting. I think that's around 1670. Oh, wow. Um, and then I have stuff all the way up. I have some weird, you know, kind of modern folk art, just odd in, you know, pieces. If it, I don't know. You know, it's kind of funny because I, I started it as kind of therapeutic. And then turns out I kind of had a knack for picking out pieces that were kind of cool. And then really, other people were like, wow, what is this? Yeah. And mm-hmm. I was like, I don't know. I just got it because I thought it looked cool. And then it turned into actually a hobby where I could at least pay for my trips and have a couple bucks to buy some, you know, food in a hotel room on the way back to, it's still kind of a hobby, but I mean, it's turned into where it's, it's going to end up being the last three years transition into a business. Right. And I think that's where we started with the last three years. Right. So, I, yeah. So I, that's why I look at this. And I see. Okay. So how much time do you have left on the fire service? Uh, just under two and a half years. Right. Are you now, I, I know you do a lot of teaching, you know, mm-hmm. nationally and stuff. Are you going to stay connected in that hazmat world or? It's, uh, I haven't decided yet. Yeah. 
So I absolutely love teaching. I love teaching as much as I like collecting junk. Yeah. <laughs> so I really do. I mean, I, I enjoy it. Um, and if I didn't enjoy it, it would be an easy choice for me. But yeah. I, I love I love teaching, uh, and I love teaching not only here within the fire department, but from coast to coast. I've met so many really cool, unique, extremely talented, invested in their profession people yeah. that it's uh, it's interesting, it's exciting. I learn stuff from them all the time, um, and it's really rewarding. So, which kind of all goes together. Like it's crazy. I'm having, I'm probably having as much fun at work now as I did when I got hired. You know, part of it's because of the truck that I work on, the guys that I work on. But even now, it's almost like we're going through this change where, uh, you know, there's new and exciting things that we're training and preparing for that never would have been on our radar, you know, three, five, ten years ago. The active shooter drills, the new, you know, world of hazardous materials. There's just, I mean, there's crazy stuff. And find it super exciting and cool right I, I find myself saying all the time that the operational context that we op, that we find ourselves in is changing and uh is uh continuously uh evolving and it seems like it's evolving faster and faster it's no, no longer can you just provide you know fire suppression right but we, and we've seen this over the course of the last you know 30 35 years, 40 years of the fire service, they've evolved into EMS and community paramedicine. And we've got active shooters and, you know, all these different things are changing every day. When we come to work, the nature of, you know, you know, hazmat and, and special operations and all these different components that are feeding into what we do, the relationship we have with PD, et cetera, mm-hmm. all evolving. So it's, it's, I'm glad you appreciate that because it could be a real bummer for somebody who's anchored into it the, the way it always was. Right. Yeah. And there's, I mean, there's still people out there, it's crazy because you know the you know the old school fire department I think was pretty I don't know sometimes I struggle for words and stuff and things like that but it was almost like one dimensional right you got on a truck you went to the fire you pulled your hose off you squirted water on it and then you were done you know so and maybe I'm way off in describing it but now working for the fire service there's so many dimensions and facets and uh, you know regions that we can that we should be working in. I almost feel like we're behind the curveball, doing fire, medical, hazmat, TRT with all the new stuff that's coming up. Relationships with PD, bomb squads, SWATs, designer drugs, new WMDs. I mean, whatever it happens to be, you know, you really to be prepared. You need to be ahead of that curve. Right. So, I don't know. I could talk all day on weird shit like that. Well, that's a you know. So when you're as you're traveling around teaching, are you are you finding yourself? Um, having conversations about stuff like that, about how other agencies are, are adjusting and yes. pivoting, um, I guess you could say. I do. And that's what, I mean, that's part of what I find so exciting, you know, cause there's things that it's, it's kind of, there are things that small departments do that, you know, that we don't really do. And I, I've, I've been super fortunate. One of the last classes that I taught, I did a toxmetic class actually at the Aberdeen Proving Grounds, which is where they do all the WMD stuff. Right. So they are... Um, I was told they only do defensive operation type stuff right now. And, uh, wow, it's crazy and really, really scary things that are out there that we're not really aware of yet. You know, like the third generation of the nerve agents and stuff like that. You know, we're not, I don't think we're prepared. I don't, I would be surprised if anybody's prepared for the next generation of stuff that's on its way out. So you're talking about stuff that, that, high level folks are 
aware that is being weaponized or, or what have you. And mm-hmm. they're starting to have those conversations at that high level. It just yes. hasn't been brought out to the, yeah. To the, we haven't seen it on the street yet. I haven't seen it yet. Yeah. I don't know. It's interesting. That's why I say that's, what's exciting about it, man. Cause I'd love to be like a newer guy in the fire service. That's filled with all this motivation and excitement. That's one of the, you know, subject matter experts or whatever happens to be in that field. You know, there's so many opportunities for members of the fire service starting, you know, now right. that's going to be way different than, you know, what we've done in the past. Right. Well, so let me ask you this too. You, you know, understanding that you're at the end of your career and you're winding it down. Um, but yet it took you a career to get to a point where you're teaching nationally and you're involved in the fire service in this, at this next level. Um, how did you, how did you get to there? how did you get to that point in your career? So if you're, if you're to go back and talk to, you know, well, how old are you when you got on the job? Uh, I don't know. It was pretty young, early twenties. Okay. So 20, let's just say 20. How and you're going back and talking to 20 year old Hawk and you're going to tell him, Hey man, this is what you got to do to be successful in this career. You know, what are you telling that guy? How, like how what's the path oh, you took man. to get there? How'd you do Bro, this? Seriously. What, what would you do differently? If I could go back and talk to 20 year old Hawk, I would have punched him right in the face. <laughs> told him to pull his head out of his butt. <laughs> so, so there were a few rough years there. <laughs> yes, there were, you know, and it's kind of different. You know, everybody's got their own story, you know, but I think it's almost like you go through a cycle when you get on the job, you know, you get on, you know, your, whatever your background is and, you know, you've got the role that you play as a young firefighter and then you start getting, you know, kind of confident in what you do. And then right. almost, you almost go through like a time where you're invincible and you're cocky and you grow your hair long and put it in a ponytail or whatever. I mean, whatever it happens to be, you know, it used to be the medic and the gold chains or the tattoos or whatever it is. Right. And then you start getting comfortable and, and I'm not saying this is everybody, but you know, I've seen this pattern with a few people, you know, and then you get kind of comfortable in it and understand a little bit more of the job. Uh, and then mature and really become invested. And it happens at different times you know, throughout your career, but then you can become invested and then you realize that you can make decisions that have impact on working conditions or, you know, education or people that work around you. Um, that's kind of what I went through. Um, I wish that I had followed some of the members that came on, you know, about the same I did before or after, uh, and kind of followed their lead. Like, Believe it or not, one of the guys that had a huge impression on me, and I was too immature to recognize it at the time, but Steve Berline and I were partners on Rescue 15. And uh, I was amazed at the impact that he had, just crazy, just little things, you know, following the process that we have in place at Phoenix, like the RBO process and things like that. Like, right. I remember I was amazed. He had uh, the back of Station 15. There were two bays that went through, and I think... He put something together and turned the back bay into one great big giant door to reduce the number of accidents that were happening at 15 by hitting that pole. I was like, how can a rescue guy impact that, you know, part of the organization? I was amazed. So I kind of followed that lead and I went into the union um, for a couple of years. And honestly, I friggin' loved it. Then my grandmother got real sick and I was driving back and forth to Las Cruces, New Mexico every week. So I backed out with about a half a year left in my term. Cause I was just doing so much driving back and forth and I took care of her for the next few years. So, um, yeah, so my advice would be, you know, you can still have fun, but you can still be a productive member of the fire department. And even more now than ever, 
another thing is that you, you got to be careful of what you do, how you act, what you put on social media, the stuff that you do out and about on your days off, what you carry over from your days off into the fire station. Yeah. You know, I was lucky. You know, I had great captains. Was, you were that, young on this job before social media was a problem. Thank God. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know what? And I was super fortunate. I worked with some really fantastic guys that uh, were okay going, hey, what the hell are you thinking? Right. You know, and were, weren't afraid to give me a whack upside the back of the head. You know? Right. So I love them. Like Dave Ellett was one of my captains. And, man, he was fantastic. He took great care of me. Chip Gleason was another one, you know, who really, you know, I probably owe those guys an apology, <laughs> but they were, they were awesome, you know, great guys. And they did, they, you know, they did me a favor. So that's part of, I think I got off track. I get off track a lot. I get kind of squirrely. Well, so but. one of the things I wanted to ask you that part of my question was, you know, you got into teaching at the, at the national level. And so, um, not only are you able, I mean, that's one way to have a, a, an impact in the fire service, right, is to teach inside your organization. I, and I feel like I learn so much when I teach because you're preparing and then you're delivering information and you're getting feedback from the students, right? And then you take that information and you're able to expand your own capacity and, you know, being able to reach out and, and take that to another level. Um, how did you end up doing that? Well, one, I love the teaching aspect of it, you know, and I completely agree with you. If I'm going to teach a class, I need to be 100% prepared. There's nothing worse than sitting in front of a class and being asked a question and going, uh, I'm not really sure. I'll get back with you on that. Right. So um, uh, I just, I go out of my way to make sure that I am prepared for the class I'm giving. And at that point, it's just the delivery of the information. I'm not a big PowerPoint slide guy. And, you know, the whole teaching from coast to coast thing, that's one advantage of working with a large department, you know, like Phoenix Fire Department. We're, we're big. We're busy. We run calls. We get, you know, we get the calls that people talk about regularly when they get them. You know, like a, a regular call for us might be, a, you know, a two or three time a year call for other people. You know, so we get sets and reps and we can draw from experience that we've had firsthand on trucks. And what I've seen being able to go out and teach outside of, you know, like Arizona is I've been fortunate enough to work on busy trucks where we get hands-on on these calls that can end up being difficult or, you know, interesting or exciting or dangerous. And, right. you know, part of the reward that I get is the amount of interest and questions and, you know, the conversations that it sparks up when I talk about, you know, a call that we've been on that they hear about, but they don't ever run on. So and I try to incorporate, you know, any time I get a chance to take pictures or go back and look and review and all that stuff, I'll take those photos, I'll put them in the PowerPoint so I get, so I can actually talk about experiences with photos um, outside of what we do here. Right. Yeah, I think there's something to be said for having that um, hands-on operational experience and exposure and being able to take that and say, yeah, you read about it in a book, but here's, you know, now we know, here's an actual exa an example of where it took place, and here's some of the... Um, variables that we had to deal with, some of the idiosyncrasies of, mm -hmm. you know, this type of environment. And, and, and you know, yeah, and the, if we found out that in the book it says this, but in real life, here's how it translates into into the real world uh, based on these variables. And these are things that took place or what have you. So I think those are really good teaching tools to add to, you know, when you, when you get out there and be able to share those teaching tools, have that exposure and experience. So that's cool. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You know what? I'm also, I'm also very fortunate um, 
uh, you know, I like staying busy when I'm on the truck and I get a lot of grief for that. You know, I get, people give me a hard time. I'm the buff. Oh God, you're going to go work with Hawk. Better get some sleep before you get over there. Cause you're going to jump calls all day long. Or I think I remember when you be. went to station 45 and I came in one day and somebody's like, yeah, he just, Hawk came in and he like redid the support truck. <laughs> and I'm like, uh, he did. <laughs> Yeah, I wanted to take that support truck had extrication equipment on it. I thought we ought to take it like on 962s with extrication because we could get busy, man, and start doing stuff before the ladder got there. But anyway, that's just, and I think, you know, that's a whole other conversation. <laughs> well, it speaks to but, your desire to be engaged and busy and nothing wrong with that. Yeah, and I love it now. You know, I got to give a shout out to my guys because my guys are all in. You know, I'm super fortunate. I've got older guys on my truck and they just know that we're going to be busy. Right. You know, we, uh, if we, if a call comes out that we know that we're going to get to work on, we'll go. And right. I don't get any grief from those guys. And actually they'll be like, Hey Hawk, we can make that, you know, we can do that. We'll get there and we'll work, Right. you know, which is good. And they love to train. And this goes, kind of goes back to the teaching because I have a crew that is willing to get involved and work and learn. There are times either out pre-planning or training or jumping calls where we learn a lot of stuff that otherwise we would have missed. You know, especially in the hazmat world, we have more companies here, hazardous materials wise, teams, people than like I've taught in places like uh, east side of Oregon, Washington State, right? So their hazmat team comes from three counties and it takes mm. hours for them to get there. You know, like if they want, if they need four hazmat trucks, they'll make a phone call and two hours later they'll have them there if i need four hazmat trucks i get on the radio and they're knocking at my door in 15 minutes right you know or less so and i don't know where i was going with that but anyway the guys i mean the fact that i have guys that are so willing to learn and work and experience and train and do all that adds to outside stuff right well i think it's interesting we have a there's a depth in our neck of the woods in our in our hazmat and special operations teams in 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 total in our trt as well as our hazmat that, um, it, you know, you have a lot of volume of traffic, right? We get a lot of calls and, um, you know, we have a team that allows us to be able to do a lot of work. So, you know, I think we have over 200 folks, you know, in our consortium that participate in hazmat mm -hmm. and, and similarly with TRT. And so if you need resources to make a confined space entry, you can have them there. And if you need resources to do a level a entry, you know, you have them there quickly and, and so we, and we have enough call volume, you know, I, I can't remember the exact hazmat call volume, but I know there's a significant amount of volume that, that you need a team that that's robust and has the ability to do that. And, um, so it's pretty cool the, the system that we work in, you have that ability. So, um, for those who don't know, you work on uh, a squad and our system, that squad has hazmat and TRT and, uh, plus plus capacity, I would say has the ability to do heavy extrication and mm -hmm. some other stuff like that. What are some of the other things that you guys do? You know, the squad's kind of interesting. And, uh, this is one of the things, you know, I, I found that as I get older, I have things that really bug me, which is kind of odd. And I think back to those captains that I worked with, like, well, I can work with that guy. I just got to understand what his quirks are. Uh -huh. I woke up one day and I'm like, holy shit, man, I'm that old guy that's I have got quirks. those weird quirks, right? <laughs> so I have a, I have a couple. It's kind of, yeah. So anyway, um, I don't even know where I was going with that, but working on the squad. So there's, we have different disciplines on the squad, obviously, right? Hazmat and TRT. All right. But, uh, oh, I know where I was going. So it's crazy to me that we have members on this department 
that don't understand what the capabilities of my truck is, you know, or the other trucks, you know, and some of that is people that are responders out there that should know if you need this done, you can call a squad and you can get it done. So part of what we do in the squad is we try to market ourselves a little bit. Perfect. Well, this is your opportunity. Tell me, tell me, what (laughs) does a squad do? So we run calls. All right. Just the basic stuff, which is good. Sorry, I hit the microphone. Um, so we do obviously all the medical stuff. So for those of you that are listening from outside the valley, there's two paramedics on the on the squad and then three firefighters. So I've staffed with five, which is beneficial. And it's awesome when I have all five techs on the job, on the truck. Yeah. So we have, we're all dual trained, hazmat tech, TRT tech. So we should have five members on the truck that are dual trained. Yeah. We also do heavy lifting slash extrication. We have a specialized set of tools that a lot of the members, even the TRT teams really don't get a ton of access to with training and, you know, utilization and put to use and stuff. So we have the capabilities of like, say there's uh, an accident and under ride, for example. So an under ride is when a car drives underneath a semi rear ends it from behind or from the side and the car is actually underneath the semi uh, oftentimes and you see pictures you can probably go on instagram and find pictures today of firefighters extricating somebody underneath a semi so you can make that process a hundred times easier by stabilizing the semi lowering the car lifting the semi separating the two and actually performing the extrication outside which is much safer for the guys um, and uh, much more efficient for the people that are trapped. So that's like one of the things that we can do. Okay. So, and again, it goes back to the whole training. Very fortunate. Uh, my crew and I, we just returned from Georgia where we went back to a five day heavy extrication lifting class. So we were put into scenarios that are way out of the norm, right? So cars hanging off of say bridges or a car that goes through a parking garage. So, you know, something funky, like, thinking about if you had that call what would you do if you had to extricate somebody that was in a vehicle as it was hanging out of a parking garage could you actually repel with a homatro tool or hearse tool or whatever it is and perform an extrication over the side right so that's stuff that we did and what i really like about the guys on my truck like we'll go through all different kinds of we did extrication in confined spaces like we would simulated like parking garages or extrications upside down with a vehicle in a canal a dry canal or whatever and people oh you'll never have that call you're never going to have a car hanging around or whatever it is the funny thing is though is that when you say that um you, you may you may never have that call Mm -hmm. but what if you do and you've never thought about it Absolutely. Never give it any consideration. That's my, one of my biggest fears is I'm going to pull up on an event and I'm going to see something that I never thought was possible. And that's that, I mean that, that in of itself is very possible, right. but, but to have that event and you show up there and you've never given any thought to what could possibly happen. Right. So I always, I've always operated under the presumption that if I can envision it or if I can imagine it, it's possible It'll somewhere. Happen. We should probably train to it. Yeah. You know, and the other part of that is, so maybe we won't ever get this scenario, right? But we might get something that's comparable. Or, or we similar, might get something yeah. that's similar and we'll go, right. man, remember when we did the cars hanging around class and this? How about if we use some of those techniques in this scenario? Yep. You know, and I, I um, one thing that I really love about my crew is when we show up on those calls, or when we've been special called to a couple of really odd, funky extrications, mm. um, and my guys will sit down and look at it, you know, for the first 15 seconds and do a quick, and then, you know, we're all like, okay, what do you guys think? What's going to be the best way? Will we do this? So I really love the fact that 
you know, we can take training that we've had in the past, kind of put a bunch of ideas into the Rolodex, talk about it before we actually go to work, and then perform work that so far it's been really good. You know, things have come out, you know, well. Right. So the heavy extrication lifting stuff, you know, that's one of the other things. We also carry, like, we have a man versus machine kit available on Squad 44. So we actually, we attended classes, we put together a kit so we can um, do everything from disassembled machinery. We've got little Dremels and small, you know, just uh, handheld tools that we can cut, remove screws, bolts, washers, uh, there's oils, there's uh, little things like, uh, you wouldn't think about it, like if you take a butter knife and smash it down, you know, almost paper thin, you can insert that next to a digit or an arm and then use that as a kind of a guide if you're cutting metal so you don't end up cutting the person, mm. you know, little things like that. So we have a kit that's available uh, on our truck. Which is crazy. You don't think about it like it. I've met, uh, I've got a couple friends that work over in Seattle. There's one guy that I met, solid friggin' awesome guy, you know. And they were talking about Squad Two or Heavy Rescue Two in Seattle. So last year they had to do uh, twelve genital ring removals. Can I say cock ring on here? You just did. I did. <laughs> oh, yeah. So anyway, they had guys that were stuck, and they get called, and they're like, "Oh my gosh, what? Twelve of them? So they did twelve of them." And I'm like, well, we haven't had one yet. We actually, we actually got special called to one, but they ended up transporting the guy before we got there and took him to the hospital. I was wow. expecting the hospital to call us. So back. what did so, they? What kind of unique uh, contraption did they come up with to extricate you know, these it goes uh, back fellas? That, it goes back to that whole thing. You have things that you can cut it. And you have to, you know, you have to protect. Like, just say it's a, you know, a finger. You know, you have to be able to protect it from being cut or being burned or. You know, there was, uh, it, it, there was, they talk about a scenario somewhere back east, New York or one of the cities in North Brooklyn or somewhere, um, uh, Buffalo, where a kid had a, his finger in a bottle, right? Okay. So they're like, well, we're going to, we can try to cut this or whatever. And one of the guys said, well, let's, we'll just, you know, we'll wrap his hand up or whatever, we'll break it. Well, anyway, that ended up being their course of action when you can cut it, you know, using the right tools, which we have on the squad. Um, they ended up breaking it, severing some tendons when it mm -hmm. broke, you know. So that's a significant injury for a seven-year-old. Yeah. You know, and then there actually being some permanent damage and a huge payout. So we can avoid that just with some of the stuff that we carry outside of that. Right. One step further, you know, we have a lot of tools that we utilize if we get put on deck, you know, or uh, we can be support for commercial boats. We have a huge light tower. We can light up the scene. We have portable lights that we can take up on uh, water rescues or confined space rescues. We have the extra air monitoring. So maybe we don't have to be assigned directly to be part of uh, a rescue team or an entry team, but we can come up and provide a ton of support work on the outside that makes it safer for everybody to operate within that hot zone. Right. So, and I think that gets overlooked a lot. Yeah. It, it is interesting. It's, it is, um, does seem to get kind of, uh, underappreciated in our neck of the woods, right? All those capabilities. So it's, mm -hmm. um, well, so when you are appreciated and you get pulled into stuff, what are some of the interesting things or that you've run into? What kind of calls are you guys seeing that are you know more unique? Uh, well, you know, the biggest ones lately, we've had a rash of some pretty crazy extended intricate extrications. So we got special called out West 
a few months back where we had two cars. It was a T-bone. They ended up, it was a high rate of speed. They ended up rolling. They ended up on a probably a 45-degree sloped sand embankment. It was a, a car that had a truck on top of it. The truck had actually pushed the roof of the car down. The driver was still inside the car with a truck on top of him. Mm. So there were two ladder companies out there from the west side that had been working for a while, and they just could not, every time they tried to do something, there would be some slippage. They tried stabilizing it with what their version of rescue jacks, where we use rescue jacks, um, and they just were not making progress. So they called us. So again, we looked at it for a second, tried to evaluate it, and uh, we ended up using uh, a grip hoist, which is like a come along. It's like a, a, a basically a portable winch or a come along thing. We ended up back tying it to a Palo Verde tree, the only Palo Verde tree within a mile of us. <laughs> you know, there was no way you could get a vehicle up in the sand where we were. So we back tied to that, used the grip hoist. Uh, stabilized the truck with six by sixes. We pounded some stakes to kind of hold some six by sixes so the truck didn't end up sliding down the slope. And we rolled the truck off of the car. Once we did that, the ladder crew that had already been there was able to take the roof off the car and extricate the guy. Cool. So, you know, that was one. Um, just, I mean, some funky ones. We had a pretty intricate extrication not too long ago where we had a GMC Suburban get rear-ended along with multiple other cars by an 18-wheeler that wasn't necessarily paying attention on the highway. Hmm. And that was a crazy call. Um, we had two kids, 11, 12 years old, that were uh, trapped more so probably than I've ever seen anybody. They were squished between the back of the frame, the back seat, and the front seats uh, in an area to where one of them uh, was smashed so much that she was suffocating. She couldn't hmm. get out. Um, so long story short, uh, it was tragic. I had a solid, one of my, two of my guys were off and I had a solid Rover on there, uh, from a shift who was on operating one tool about 10 minutes, halfway through the extrication, this kid that he was working on looked at him and asked him if God hated him. So coming from a 10 year old, you know, meanwhile, you're looking at him it's and rough. His, his right foot is touching his left ear and he's in a face of about six inches you know, just tiny. And then uh, his cousin on the other side asked us if she was going to die in the car. That was about 10 minutes into it, which is crazy coming from kids in that scenario. Um, but long story short, we got super aggressive with the tools. We were able to, we used rams to kind of create some openings so they could breathe. We used our electric chainsaw and cut existing cribbing to fit the space that we created. So mm. we were able to create gaps for them to kind of breathe while we finished the extrication. And then it was just a, a slow go at peeling, peeking, removing, removing doors, B posts, cutting seats, prying them out of the way, and then getting them out. And they both ended up actually with full recoveries, So, which is crazy. One of them was unconscious when we, we got them out and uh, massive crazy massive injuries but they're going to be good yeah yeah anytime you have a an 18 wheeler versus pov it's not a good outcome yeah, it doesn't it's not a good situation it, you know the cars just do not do well so yeah you know that that whole scenario goes back to the training that we do so um along with jumping calls i love to train so we have a couple connections and we'll go out and train we we get a lot of extrications in you know the area of town that we're in maryvale we get a lot of extrications there, I-10, the 101, you know, way south, further out west. So right. we train uh, at least once a month 
on extrication stuff. And again, it's not, we don't go pop doors. You know, we'll flip a car upside down. We'll create scenarios. One of the trainings we did, I had the guys go on. I said, all right, we're going to take the doors off, take the roof off, roll the dash. Um, let's see how quickly we can do it. They're like, that's it? Like, I'm like, yeah, that's it. We're going to do that. It's like, all right, cool. We'll be out of here in you know, 15 minutes. I go, wait. I go, no Homacho tools. You can use everything but ram spreaders, <laughs> and cutters, <laughs> right? So the guys are like, wow. But I'll tell you what, man, those guys did it, which right. is awesome. Well, the most powerful tool you have is between, you know, is the six inches between your ears. And uh, if, <laughs> if you're not using that tool, right, so you have to exercise that tool. If you give guys the exact same evolution every single time, they're not challenged. They're not really using their brain to, to evolve. Right. Right? They're just doing the same thing over and over. And yeah, they'll get really good at that one skill set. but are they truly expanding their capacity as a firefighter, you know, as a, as a, uh, extricator. Mm-hmm. No, they're not. Right. right. They're, and when, and what happens when that tool fails for whatever reason, there was a truck who, uh, um, there, they came out to the truck in the morning to run a call and they, their cabinet doors were open. Uh, and some of their equipment was missing. Their their Hamatro power plant had been jacked. Oh boy! And so they're like, what? so had they gotten a legit call at that moment, right? Well, what are you going to do? Are you right. just going to throw your hands up and quit? Call for call for somebody else? Well, yeah, you might call for someone else. But in the meantime, while you're waiting for those tools to show up, what can you do, right? And if you have never challenged yourself to think about some of those. Uh, that, that the dynamics of, of working outside the box, so to speak, outside of your normal tool set. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's a, that's a great thing to do. Yeah. Yeah. That's something else we carry on the squad. You know, we have a pretty large assortment of battery operated hand tools, sawzaws, cutoff wheels, grinders, you know, all that stuff. And we've incorporated those into extrications multiple times, you know, cutting steering wheels or brake pedals or extricating, you know, cutting pieces of car off where people have either been impaled or stuck behind mm. getting a small handheld tool in there to make the removal quick and easy right so they're we train with them so they're effective we're fast we know which works well on brake pedals which ones don't you know steering wheels you know whatever it happens to be and then i think our favorite tool in the truck is the ajax tool i think there's people out there that don't even know that they have an ajax tool on their truck some of the new people that are out and about roving. Because it's one of those things you might get in the academy, but, I mean, honestly, how often does it come off the truck to work with it? Right. You know, probably yeah. not right. enough. Yeah. So. Well, that goes back to that, that training and preparation. You've got to put that time in. Yeah. Because you're only going to get so many reps. You've got to have your hands on the tools and, you know, really exercise that skill set. In a variety of ways. Yeah, and it's hard. Everything that we're talking about is a perishable skill. And especially with me getting older now and the fact that I drank as much as I did in high school, man, I got to work with them all the time because I will forget. You know, you forget. Oh, you're like, oh, yeah, I forgot about that. You know, right. same thing with hazmat. We were dealing with hazmat. Oh, oh, yeah, that's right. You know, like TRT. I'll be the first to admit my TRT skills because we don't get a lot of TRT out on the west side. I'm, I'm lacking of where I should be right now. Right. You know, so that's one thing that we've incorporated into, you know, some of our training instead of cutting cars as often, we're sacrificing a cut day so we can go out and do some TRT stuff. Right. Well, you guys have so many so, disciplines. How the heck do you stay relevant and contemporary, you know, um, training. qualified? Yeah. Right. Well, you got to get out there and get mm-hmm. reps and you've got, you know, these multiple disciplines you've got to rep on. Plus you guys are responsible for doing, um, you know, not only are you able to do hose work and, you know, and, and engine company work essentially, 
um, without the pump, right? But you can support engine work. How do you, uh, you know, you also got to maintain relevancy and, and currency in your ladder work, your ladder skills. Because that's another aspect of the squads is your ability to go and do ladder stuff, truck work. Yeah. Super fortunate on the west side. So we're kind of our area where we operate as the truck company. You know, So yeah. we get assigned to the roof a lot. Another thing unknown about the squads is we have high-rise packs. So if there's something significant, you know, apartment complex or something, we're not going to end up going to the roof. We can take our high-rise packs and, you know, hook up and yeah. you know, get to work fighting fire. I love it. Me too. I love it. <laughs> my favorite thing by the way is kicking indoors is that right yeah, i freaking love it <laughs> last one i kicked in i realized that i was probably getting close to retire because i thought i broke my leg yeah so you're gonna blow out your uh you're gonna blow out your hip or something uh, yeah i probably will i still like it though oh i'm gonna pause for a second i'm getting a cramp in my my freaking stupid leg you want to get a chair you want to put it sit in chairs you want some water? Dude, no, 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 it's my bad. So I had a tumor removed from my spine and, yeah. um, and, uh, it causes, I have like spasms in my leg and when I train hard, the spasms get worse. Nothing else. And no other cramps anywhere else in my body, but this Just leg, that. yeah, stupid, but yeah. <laughs> so, um, on a total side note, it's kind of interesting about, you know, the whole cancer and everything. I had a little scare a few years back where I actually went to my doctor with chest pain. Oh. I actually had it. I was at work, and I was like, man, I feel like I'm having some chest pain. You know, I was like, there's no way I'm having chest pain. I was getting ready to run a marathon. I was, felt great. I was fit. You know, it was nothing. I could go out and run 12 miles, and my heart rate wouldn't get above, like, 86. You know, I felt awesome. Then I'm like, God, pressure. Yeah. Pain. So I was like, I'll just go to bed. I'll be fine. So I, so I went to bed, <laughs> went away, got up the next morning, started moving around again. It came back. I was like, man, that's weird. And I was like, well, maybe I'll go to the health center. I was like, no, I'm not going to the health center. So I just called my doc. I go, yeah, I don't really feel good. I need to come in. So went in, blah, blah, blah. Long story short, go in, check. Go, Everything's fine. Oh, man, this is so weird. And uh, there was a PA that was working here. And she's like, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just be thorough here. I'm going to send you in and have you do a swallow. I'll get you in this afternoon. We'll go do a barium oh. swallow thing. So I'm like, all right, huh. cool. Right? So... I go in and do this barium swallow. I was at my doctor at like 9 o'clock. So like 11.30, I was in doing a barium swallow okay. and stuff, right? At 2, she calls me and she goes, uh, you need to make an appointment with the GI doc. I got a number for you. I was like, what? She goes, yeah, something doesn't look right. I was like, great. You know, so long story short, go to the GI doc. They do the whole scope thing, cut out five areas of my gut that were uh, malt lymphoma beginning stages of really? like this, uh, lymphoma in the stomach lining it's something something lining tissue of your stomach so they cut out like these five areas uh and then i ended up on what was the know, pain you were experiencing chest pain pressure yeah, but what, what, what was it though like what causes that pain in that uh it was you know what i don't really know for sure but after i got rid of that so i was diagnosed with h pylori and i don't know if that was related to it or not hmm. but i think it was just damage secondary to whatever it was that had been in my gut the doctor asked me if i chewed tobacco he says your stomach looks like you've chewed tobacco for 30 years so i was like wow and you don't for the and record i don't and i don't i've yeah. never chewed tobacco right i tried it twice first time i friggin loved it i got like a little <laughs> buzz and i felt great second time uh, I was on my hands and knees in a cold shower for four hours, dry heaving <laughs> until I had a friggin' migraine that lasted for about a week. I'm sure I broke some brain cells on that one, and I never did it after that. Uh, but 
The yeah. only I tried chewing once when I was in the Marine Corps. I was on guard duty, and so I'm sitting at this desk. You know, barracks is empty on a Saturday night, and I'm there watching the stupid barracks. And I'm looking through the drawers in this desk, just trying to entertain myself. And I open up a drawer and I see a can of Copenhagen. And I'm like, oh, I see all the guys like, you know, thumping it with their thumb and kind of doing that thing. And I'm like, this is kind of cool. So I pick it up and I palm it and I, I start thumping it. Thunk, thunk, thunk. And I'm like, yeah, well, I see guys do this. How bad can it be? Right? So I reach in, I open the can up and I pull out a giant chunk, just like I see the, the good old boys do. Right? They grab this giant chunk and I stick it in my lip and I'm walking around and I'm like, I'll go for a walk. And in about, I, I want to say five minutes, but it probably was only like 30 seconds. I'm like, I start sweating and I'm flush and I'm, I'm, I run through the barracks. I'm so open. I don't spit it out. I'm just opening up windows, trying to, like, I'm starting to overheat and I'm trying to open up windows and I'm like, oh my God, maybe I need to spit the dip out. So I, I pull it out of my mouth and I'm like, oh, it's too late. I got to lay down. My head starts spinning. So about three weeks later, I'm walking a guard at the armory and I come across the fence line and this other kid comes walking up and he's like, hey. You want a dip? <laughs> Mike, sure. <laughs> I guess that first experience was just a mistake. So he flips it over the fence to me. I grab it and I, it was some kind of like Kodiak winter green or something crazy, right? He's like, oh, this is, this is delicious. And I'm like, okay. So I take a dip of that and within 10 seconds, I'm like, I could feel the symptoms coming back. So I quickly pulled it out of my mouth. I'm like, okay, no, 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 no. You can't do it. <laughs> that was it, man. That was my, my weird one, my pathetic experience with, uh, with Chew. Um, yeah. And I learned my lesson. I didn't like it. Thank God I never did it, you know, just, you know, for that, for that reason, you know, the health benefits afterwards. Yeah. Well, knowing what you know now, right, as we're all, you know, growing up and maturing and figuring things out, you know, I went to my doc uh, the other day and they're like, do you smoke? Do you drink? Do you, and I go, nope, 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 nope. I don't do any of that stuff. And they're like, wow, that's pretty unusual. And I'm like, yeah, I guess. hasn't kept me from cancer, but at, the, yeah. <laughs> but at least I'm trying. Now, um, <laughs> like I have the guys at work, if they're cutting up fruits and vegetables, I'll take all that stuff and throw it in a side bowl. And then I run it through a juicer. Oh, yeah. So I do some sort of fresh, it's either cold pressed juice or some blended mix. Like today we had some leftover fruit and I brought in some baby spinach. So I threw a uh, handful of fruit in the blender, mm. one of those small containers of baby spinach. I topped it off with some coconut juice and coconut milk, the water, and then ended up, that's what I, that was my breakfast. So raw fruits, vegetables, coconut. Every time I get a pain, I drink something either green or red because I don't want to take cancer. It's either beet juice or kale juice or something. Yeah. Well, I think we all need to be more deliberate about what we're putting in our bodies, right? You really got to think about what, what it does for your body. You know, is it, does it just feel good? Is it just delicious or is there an actual uh, benefit? Years ago, I read uh, uh, Dr. Barry Sears wrote a book called the zone and regardless of what you think of that whole 40, 30 and whatever, all that nonsense, the, the, the thing that he said in there that I thought was fascinating was he talked about, um, how you have a, whatever you eat, your body has a metabolic response to, right? So if you put glucose in your body releases insulin and it, you know, to, to meet that and to tap it down and to measure it off. Right. So he said, so when you do that, you know, you're releasing a hormone in your body. So effectively consuming food is consuming a drug. And when, and when I read that, I thought, man, that's a, that changes everything. 
now if you think about, you know, food for me is just like, oh, you got to eat three times a day. I have these rules I picked up throughout the course of my life, whatever they are. Breakfast is the most important meal. Um, and what are other rules are there? Um, no, I can't think of any, but that's, you know, those kind of strange cultural idiosyncratic rules that we have that are not real, right? And if, you, if the food that you eat causes this hormonal response in your body, well, then maybe the quality of the food you put in, the quality of the drug that you're taking should be taken into consideration. Mm-hmm. I completely agree with that. Yeah. So. Yeah. I have a whole, you know, if we ever do this again or if I chat with you later on stuff, I have a whole thing about diet and exercise and working out and all that else. Cause yeah. I'm, I'm well, for it. years you were doing, you were doing triathlons and, yeah, and, there was uh, a point in my life where events. I was freaking like anal. I was a yeah. vegetarian minus I ate some fish and I ate some eggs. But I mean, I everything on top of that was tofu, fruits and vegetables. That was yeah, it. not was anymore. Crazy. No, I'm anyone. I would like to go back to it, but I think there's a certain drug that's in like cheeseburgers and bacon that, <laughs> that you're <laughs> that deeply makes me addicted to. More. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I would like I think to get it's back called to sugar. Eating. It probably is, but I felt great um, and. Uh, w- get to the end of that one day I woke up and had a craving for a double bacon cheeseburger. So I ate one. I spent 48 hours rolled up into a ball cause I thought I was going to die, you know, and that kind of put it into it. But the whole training thing back then, um, I overtrained and I got to a point where man, it was in my head and I went on this weird binge where I would eat and then make myself throw up. Like I would binge eat, like I would eat an entire, you know, medium sized thick crust, meat lovers pizza from pizza hut. And then I would feel so mad at myself and disgusted that I would go in and puke. So when it was a whole training eating, and then I just woke up one day and I was like, what the hell is wrong with you? You know? And luckily that was enough to kind of push me out. At, yeah. At there's, you know, there's a, this is a whole long conversation, but there's a whole line. There's a whole lot of body dysmorphia that for men that we don't think about, you know, right. You know, this idea that I need to be a certain way and have a certain physique and, and there's guys out there who will binge eat and, and vomit. Um, yeah. and there's, it's a real problem. Um, there's healthier ways to live and we got to figure it <laughs> yeah. out. I'm glad you got, kind of got a hold of that because dude, I mean, if I was the high school girl that had bulimia for that two week period, that was me. Cause that's what I was doing. And it was, it was weird. The whole, I remember some of the emotions and some of the torment that I put on myself through that time frame, I could see where people could get like really wrapped up. And, and I honestly, I don't know what it was that triggered me out of it, but it had to do with, you know, being a, a podium athlete, you know, and that's what sent you down that path. Like you were like, I am, uh, I'm missing yeah. what you're saying. What do you mean? So you, what, what caused you to, so it was overtraining and, uh, I trained with a guy. It was overtraining in the desire to not just race, but win. Yeah. And there was so much pressure that was put on that. You know, so um, when I first started, I uh, with the whole triathlon, just you know, since we brought it up, the whole fitness thing was crazy to me. And uh, you know, I like I ran a almost just over a 31 minute 10k, uh, and I was you know competing in triathlons and making the podium in my age group and stuff like that. But it was I was in a place that was not healthy. Yeah, I was fit and I was fast, but um, I was. For lack of better words, I was sick. Yeah, <laughs> you know, well, it's interesting you say that because there's a lot of uh, um, a lot of elite athletes who will who will t- cop to that. You know, being an elite racer is not the same thing as being healthy. Right. Not at all. Mm-hmm. So 
understanding that and, te- and tempering that, you know, we talk about, you know, we talk about in the fire service, like being a professional firefighter is, is akin to being an industrial athlete and you have to maintain a level of preparedness for the job. Being an elite triathlete is not the same thing, right? There's a balance that you have to strike and mm-hmm. in, in all the fitness modalities and also there's balance that you have to strike across that. I found myself when I was racing Ironman and, and long distance ultras and stuff that I was, I could go for days, but I was weak as a kitten. Mm-hmm. And I went outside one day to do some pull-ups and I could barely crank out three pull-ups before my arms, like my little noodle arms were going to fall off. But yet I was able to go out and run, you know, ultra distance triathlons and right. ultra distance races. Um, and I realized, oh, there's a lack of balance in my personal mm-hmm. training, not to mention the whole diet piece, but that's a whole, you know, it's a whole separate piece. You know, right. I, I trained so that I could eat, you know, cause I love eating. And so figuring out how to, how to do that the right way. I, you know, I feel like some of our, you know, some of the cats on the job who are training for shows and things like that, that's a, you know, that's a whole other end of the spectrum, right? You're, right. you're getting jacked and cut, but are you functional, right? What's your, your ability to do actual work in your gear and on the fire ground or in any, you know, situation that we find ourselves in? Yeah, absolutely. Kind of an interesting subject. Yeah, no doubt. Well, yeah. because you, know, you think about it, there's some agencies out there who say, no, here's, we're going to have an actual fitness standard and you have to pass this test and be able to do that. You know, does that, does it correlate to the work that you're expected to do? Right. Yes. You know, it's interesting that you say that since we were kind of talking about the squads and stuff like that earlier, I mm. would, I'm one of the guys that would like to see a fitness standard, a test, mm-hmm. if, if you call it that for the positions on those special ops trucks. You know, so I, I, I ended up doing two more terms as a union guy later on in my career. And I totally understand, you know, everything that the, that happens for our members. I mean, everything is in place for a reason. You know, we take care of ourselves all the way across the line, you know, regardless. Um, I think sometimes we get kind of fused taking care of our members might be putting younger members on those trucks that go out and do funky, hard, difficult work rather than put older people in positions where they're almost a liability. Right. Well, to themselves and to the operation potentially. Right. right. Yeah. And I'll probably make some people mad by saying that, but I mean, I think there's, I well, think there's some truth in that. So I, I think that it's a, it's an important conversation to have. And mm-hmm. if somebody is going to get mad about that, they need to really consider where that anger is coming from. Right. The expectation is that, you, that we have a team that is capable of conducting a certain operation, you know, in, in completing a mission. If the, if the person who's who we want on that team has the physical capacity to do the job and then the mental, emotional and, you know, job knowledge, skills and abilities, then that's what we're looking for. Right. But those, all those things have to be present. It's not enough to just be a hazmat wizard, right? You have to be able to be functional and, and get into a level A suit and, and perform the job. A bunch of years ago, on a, I had a, a cat get moved over into my, uh, into my station. And he said, he goes, hey, uh, I'm going to be your down guy today. And this is on a TRT engine. And I said, uh, I don't, that's not a position, bro. <laughs> and this poor, you know, this cat was beat up. He was older and, and um, you know, had uh, gained a bunch of weight. And so he knew that he would struggle if we had a mountain rescue. And I, you know, we could see that. And I'm like, hey, man, that's, I, I hear what you're saying, but that's, I need somebody on this apparatus who can do the job. 
So that's when we think about, we talk about, mm-hmm. we only have so many technicians on this truck. Every technician needs to carry a pack up the mountain and be, and then when they arrive at the patient, be able to perform skills. Right. You can't lay down and catch, catch a nap <laughs> catch and recover. Breath. You can't right? drop the bag and go behind the bushes and puke for the next 15 minutes. Right. Right. Yeah. So, so it's incumbent upon us. You know, I think the professional thing to do is to stay as fit as possible and, and, you know, I get it. As you get older, you're going to lose a step. You're not going to be as spry as a 20 year old when you're 48. I get right. it. But you know, I feel like in some of our older members who are really in shape, they maintain, they learn, well, all of our, our older members, they gain the ability to, um, do work in a more efficient way. Right? right. When you're young, you just like a bull in a China shop, but as you get older, you get more finesse, you gain more experience and you're able to finesse it. That being said, there's still a physicalness to the job right. that you have to maintain. You got to be able to put all your PPE on and go do work mm-hmm. for a period of time. And if, if you're more efficient, then it's going to be easier for you to do that work, but you still got to maintain that capacity. Right. So that's a really, um, I think all organizations are, are struggle with that. And I think mm-hmm. about it in the terms of our special operations group, you know, where we use seniority to assign, uh, positions, you know, is that the right thing? That's a, I think that's a, a, a conversation that we really need to have an, a, an honest conversation with ourselves about how we do that. Right. Uh, because it can, it can impact the mission. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and, 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 and when you talk about risk management, how does it impact our ability to manage risk? So it's a, uh, yeah, those are important conversations to have. And I think individuals, you know, as leadership in the organization looks to their, to their members, um, you know, we talk about health and wellness and these kind of things. Well, if you want to have longevity in your career, you got to stay fit and healthy. Otherwise you, you know, the more unfit you are, the more susceptible you are to injury. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You know, it's just the facts of life. It's yeah. just the way it is. Yeah. On that, I get mad at myself sometimes because I've had peaks and valleys with the whole fitness thing throughout my career. Right. You know, but I've never been to the point where I couldn't perform. Right. Well, a, I think a it's, there's scenario. a, we all go through a phase in our lives where, you know, you run into your, and if you haven't got there yet, you will, um, talking to you 20 year olds, the, you're going to hit your, you know, your thirties or your early, your late thirties or your forties and, and your body is changing mm-hmm. as you age. And so you have to do things different. You can't, you can't eat like you did when you were 20 or now you're not, you're, you can't eat like you did when you were 20 and it get the same results. It just doesn't work. Yeah. So. Or do 550 pound deadlifts for multiple sets. Right. It, you got to, you got to uh, modify a little bit. Right? We have some crazy studs on the job right now. I mean, we have some, yeah, I mean, I mean, they're always there, but it seems like we've had a run of some, just some cr- super powerful, massive athletic, you know, all in members. Right. Yeah. It's good to see. Right. Well, I, I, and you know, I think is, I think we, um, organizationally, we attract that type of, Mm-hmm. person you know we attract guys and gals that are very uh athletic that are very engaged and aggressive and um want to do good work the reality is that as we age you lose a step you just you know uh, it's funny that you say admit, that i hate to admit it <laughs> i know it's true i hate it too you know <laughs> i think there was a class it's been a few years now but uh kind of i don't know if it was at the beginning of the tech age but there was a, a an academy class that went through and nobody in the class had pull started a lawnmower <laughs> I don't know how long ago that was. We probably should have named that class. <laughs> that probably uh, would be good. But just let me just talk about kind of changes, how things, you know, try to right. fit. I don't know if that was trying to, I don't know. It was just kind of an odd class. Yeah. 
It wasn't my class. Well, so you, we talked earlier about the context of the fire service changing, right? Yeah. And some of the operational paradigms changing. So how does that, I think that's going to, you know, we're going to see a change in the types of people that are attracted into the fire service right. as those, you know, as our job becomes more complicated and becomes more, uh, more cerebral. And, you know, I think about hazmat, I avoided hazmat for a long time because it's such a, uh, uh, you probably, I don't know if you would agree with me on this because you're like, I'm a knucklehead. No, because it's so cerebral because yeah. it does, you really have to understand, you know, chemistry and organic chemistry and all these other things that are, um, that are outside this like normal, uh, you know, the normal scope of, of a firefighter. So I think that, you know, it attracts a certain type of people. Do you agree with that statement? <laughs> did you just call me a nerd? No. Oh, did you read that in the lines there? Uh, I don't know. You know what? I think you're right. But I'll tell you what the exciting thing about like hazardous materials is there are so many paths that you can go down and be a subject matter expert in, you know, you could, it might be containers. It might be, you know, research. It might be, you know, dressing. It might be protective clothing, PPE, decon, chemistry, organic chemistry. You could break it down into like organic peroxides or unstable materials or tank cars, rail cars over the road. There's so many different avenues that you can be an expert in within hazardous materials. You know, it opens up an unlimited amount of doors. So, and actually, so the whole hazmat thing, I was sitting in hazmat CE one day. I was one of the original guys on the squads. I started squad eight. So like what, 13 years ago, 14 years, 14 years ago. Mm -hmm. And after a year or two, and by the back then, I don't remember running a hazmat call for the first two years on squad eight. I don't, I mean, we didn't have them back then. I don't, I don't remember being on like crazy natural gas. Leaks. Were you hazmat yeah. when you got on the squad or were you already I hazmat? Got no, I was already TRT. I got my hazmat when I got on the squad. Oh, okay. But I was sitting in the back of class one day and I, I want to, I don't remember who was up there, but somebody was teaching the class and they said, is there anybody that's interested in teaching chemistry to start the chemistry aspect of it? And I was in the back of the class and I was like mid yawn and stretch. <laughs> oh, and I had my hand up in the air and I got, that's how I got picked to teach chemistry. Nice. <laughs> yeah. But it just so happened my daughter was uh, taking high school. She was in all high school honors class and she had chemistry or was going to take chemistry or something. So I ended up signing up for classes again at the community college. And then it just kind of fit and I loved it. And there was nice. a niche. So well, I chased it. So it's funny. One of the things you always hear, uh, particularly in military circles, is never volunteer. Right. I chose to avoid that uh, or disregard that rather in the course of my military career. And it opened up so many cool opportunities for me. So here's this, here's a, a similar episode, you know, here you are uh, inadvertently volunteering yourself. And, and yet what did it, what is it proffered to you? You know, you teach, um, uh, you know, I would, I would argue that you're probably one of our most effective chem chemistry teachers and, and you teach nationally and it, it opened doors for you. So I always feel like, yeah, there's, there can be some, uh, some strange consequences potentially if you volunteer for stuff. But the reality is that when you put yourself out there, it opens up doors and uh, creates opportunities you know, mm -hmm. that you may not otherwise have. You know, yeah. I like have I no said, regrets. I've never been trained in hazmat and I want nothing more now than to have hazmat training. Right. Because I see the tremendous value in having that knowledge. Yes. That's key. I mean, it's really right. Yeah. It, it opened up my eyes, not just to special ops, but firefighting in general. 
hazards, things to be aware of, look out for, things that I never would have thought twice about, fighting fire, you know, that I take second looks at now and go, hmm, we should probably, you know, avoid that or be aware of that or warn people about that or ask for more help or whatever it is. Right. So, yeah, it's been... It's been uh, it's been a great experience. It's been a fun ride for sure. Ah, cool. Hey, you, so speaking of fighting fire, you had a really interesting fire that I want you to share. Um, I don't know how to even couch it. It made national news. Mm-hmm. The uh, snake fire. Yes, <laughs> for lack of a better fire. for lack of a better. That's what name. we call it, the snake so, fire. So tell me the story. Tell me the snake story. Uh, so um, the snake fire came in as a house fire. It was way down south. You know, um, that's. That's an area down there that, you know, if you get something working, you're probably going to end up doing a little bit of work. So it, it ends up being kind of longer response times. The houses are big. So anyway, dispatch house fire down south. I don't remember, 57 or 58 got down there with a working fire in a large, like a ranch-style house. And uh, they were having some access. For whatever reason, the smoke was just hanging right around the house, so they had some limited visibility. So there was kind of a delay getting in there. I think the second engine arrived on scene. They were able to gain access and get inside and start putting water on the fire. And we got there right after that. Um, they, so just kind of a long story command, a West side chief had got their outlying city had gotten there and was trying to clear interior. There's no doubt those guys were working. I mean, the fire was, it was working. It was really good. It had uh, come through the roof. There was quite a bit of fire showing one of the corners of the house and we could not get in touch with the guys inside. So they were clearing command, clearing command, clearing command. I was every intention of us going to the roof. Um, but even, you know, some of the guys on my truck were like, Hey man, they can't get a hold of those guys. I go, yeah, grab the Rick bags. I'm going to go up front, get a quick 360, see if we can follow those lines. So we kind of communicated that with command on our way up there when we finally got a hold of them. So we got assigned to another line to go inside. And as we grabbed that line, I think, I don't remember exactly how it came out, but the chief wanted to go defensive on it. And one of the guys had made mention that there were animals or snakes or something, and I don't remember exactly what it was. Um, he, uh, he didn't have a great view of the house. He definitely knew that there was fire coming out of the roof. He's like, hey, we're going to pull out. So... Uh, again, I'm poor. I think the youngest guy in my truck has 14 years. So I got a lot of experience and, uh, we actually got on the radio and said, Hey, chief, he advised the fire through the roof is only in one area of the house. Uh, thinking that we're going to go in and make a difference and we're going to save some stuff. So long story short, we go in there and this guy ended up being a reptile, um, sales guy I and mean, that was his business so he had snakes lizards he had all kinds of stuff and i don't mean like 10 he had rooms that were filled with pull-out drawers so he had hundreds of snakes that were in there and guys were you know hoses were getting pulled through and knocking things over and there were snakes on the ground and these great big giant tortoises um <laughs> and i mean it's surreal it's almost like a movie but there were guys fighting fire like legit like one of the guys on my truck ended up burning his ears and things fighting fire while other guys are literally picking up snakes and putting them in five gallon buckets trying to like save some of the stuff guys carried out he had like these huge you know probably 150 pound tortoises that were inside we took those outside i think we saved a couple cats and dogs and honestly um there was some social media that came out after that and uh we had people messaging us myself and a guy in my backseat we have kind of our own pages and they were like demanding 
apologies and remove, you know, these pictures and, you know, why are you doing this and all this stuff. But they didn't actually know the extent that firefighters worked to save animals inside that house. So um, it was, yeah, it was an interesting story. So there's, there's a couple pictures and some videos of us actually, you know, picking up snakes and putting them in buckets and snakes crawling around the floor, you know, not like... 16 inch garter snakes we're talking like five foot six foot eight foot big snakes like so, yeah like like what type yeah, of snakes with like yeah, constrictors and, and like i don't know pythons and i just a snake is a snake to me right <laughs> some rattle and some don't but it's a snake but i mean guys it you know and it's weird you know it's kind of weird because people will give you a hard time for that but snakes and spiders are like an ingrained fear in most humans for whatever reason, yeah, you know, it's not, it's not like, oh, I can take it or leave it, right? It's like, yes or no, you know. So anyway, it drummed up a lot of uh, media attention. But the bottom line is that firefighters viewed those animals in this house like people or pets in the importance on working to save them. And the guys did a fantastic job of actually putting it on the line and working through, you know, an entire bottle you know, on a hot day and literally saved uh, tens of thousands of dollars, if not more in this guy's reptiles. Right. So it was, a, I'll be honest with you, it was a savage fire. It was good guys. I mean, everybody that was there worked really, really hard. It made a huge impact on what could have been a horrible outcome for that guy. So that's our snake fire. Nice. <laughs> Since we're talking about snakes, I have a really funny little snake story. We had a check, uh, not a check welfare, a fall injury, and we show up and the house is locked up, tight as a drum. So we we get on the alarm, we call alarm room, we say, hey, we can't get into the house, it's super tight. It, can you do the call back and see if there's, you know, keypad access or something like that? So yeah, he knows you're out there. He can hear you guys messing around. He can hear you guys messing around, and um, he said, just you know. There's no way, there's no way in you're going to have to force entry or whatever. So I'm like, well, I don't want to do any damage to this guy's house. He's just, you know, slid off the bed or something. It's, it, we, we have some time. So we're walking around the house and we find a window that's open. Now it's high noon and the house was painted kind of white. So you can't see inside the window. So the window is, uh, um, there was like a fish tank or something just on the other side of the window. And so, uh, we take the littlest firefighter <laughs> and we boost him up and we, we go to put him through the window and he's like. He goes, hey, hey, hold on, go, go slow, because I, I have to step on onto a fish tank that's on the ground. Red flag number one. <laughs> yeah. And he's like, because it's so bright on the outside, he can't see. His eyes haven't adjusted to what's on the inside of the room. So we get him, we're reaching as far as we can, and we, we kind of, we're holding him by his belt and under his back of his shirt and stuff, and we, we launch him into the room. And he hits the, he lands on the floor in the room, and I, all I can hear is, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God. <laughs> And we're like, what? What's going on? What's going on? He goes, hold on. I got to get my phone out. And, uh, and I'm like, what is happening right now? So we go around to the, the front of the room and the front of the door, uh, front door rather. Sorry. We go around to the front of the house. Right. And he comes out and opens the door. He goes, you are not going to believe this. What had happened was this room was wall to wall fish tanks from floor to seven feet high of rattlesnakes. Oh, my God. So the fish tank that he was standing on, if you will, that he had put his foot on as we were tossing him into the room was a like six foot rattler in this tank. The tank that we had hoisted him over again, 
giant rattlesnake. And uh, when he when he hit the floor inside the room, the whole room lit up. You can imagine like this 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 hissing sound of rattles. Unbelievable. And so we go in and we talk to the guy and we go, we pick him up and get him back in bed. We're like, what is going on with the room? Oh, that's my roommate. I have, he sells snakes or something. I don't even know. Like, oh man. I'm like, bro, you need to have a conversation with that guy. Cause if, <laughs> cause dang, there's hundreds of rattlesnakes in that room. What? That cannot be legal. That would be uh, crazy. Yeah. Luckily totally they didn't scary. get out. Yeah. Yeah. Luckily that kind of good thing he didn't break the rattle tank, the case yeah. or something. Well, oh, yeah, I probably shouldn't tell this story. <laughs> the risks we take to go pick people up sometimes. Uh, but, they're real. Well, hey, man, um, what, uh, you know, I know you are working on this, this project here, the, uh, the Hawk Salvage Project, and um, you have a really cool Instagram. You put some really cool stuff on there. What, where can people reach out to you if they want to commission you to come teach some hazmat or if they want to <laughs> buy, a, I don't know, one of your antiquities? Dude, um, so first off, before I go there, I can't believe that we've been talking this long, honestly, because I don't even <laughs> feel like we scratched the surface on stuff. There's so much to discuss. I know. So anyway, if you're interested in antiques, I have an Instagram page. It's Hawk Salvage. So it's all one word, at Hawk Salvage. So and that's my, uh, that's my therapy-turned-hobby-turned-retirement plan. And you can see some of the cool stuff that I pick up. And sometimes I'll have a story on there or things like that. So, and I'm, and I'm trying to get to posting like an item of the week uh, that I find either like really interesting or you might have to guess and see exactly what it is. So, um, so Hawk Salvage on Grand Avenue will be open after first Friday of September. I'm having a soft opening September, first Friday. Uh, and then... After that, my grand opening will be first Friday of November. I'm just going to have an open period there, but I'm trying to plan an event first Friday of November with some of the local businesses here. If you guys are ever down here, Grand Avenue Brewing Company is another guy that's close to retirement, that's chasing his dreams, who has some micro brews that are awesome. Cool. Really good. And then uh, if you're in the fire service and you're just kind of curious to see how my attitude might change or how I get more bold on social media, you can follow me at last the number three years, last three years. So I just post kind of random stuff on there from station activities to a few calls that we run on and, you know, stuff that we do on squad 44 squad 44 has its own page as well. It's ghost squad 44. That name, by the way, was given to us by outlying cities. It's not something that we coined ourselves. Well, it's pretty dope. The, uh, you guys have some – I know you guys sell some uh, Ghost Squad stuff that is the, – the, the funds of that goes to a charitable organization. Tell me about that. Yeah, so that's the Firefighter Cancer Fund. So uh, one of my backseat guys, uh, if you DM him uh, at Ghost Squad 44, he can hook you up. So we've got some swag. We've got some hats. We've got a few shirts. Our shirts are cool. They've got the logo of the truck on there um we don't pocket any of that money it goes back to buying more stock and then any profits that we have goes to you know help out firefighters that come down with cancer which is a a real threat you know for us in the fire service absolutely so you know i look back you know for guys like us that have been around for a while we did a lot of firefighting with limited protection and now it's like whole changing evolving thing you can protect yourself as much as you want but the firefighter the fires that we are going into now have changed so much that you know sometimes i wonder if it's even enough to what we're getting into now so you never be able to protect yourself enough so 
That's why I drink fresh pressed juice every day. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Uh, Perfect. That was kind of corny, but whatever. <laughs> well, good chat with you, Greg. You too. I'd love to do it again, man. Let's do it. I don't even feel like we talked about anything. Is that good? <laughs> I guess. I don't know. We did. We talked about a lot, bro. Did we? I think so. 